following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Hebrews 13, verses 7 through 16. All right, let's read. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not, let, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For we have for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, uh, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Uh, if, if you read these verses, uh, they can be very confusing. And I hope by the time, end of our time, they're a little less confusing, I hope. <laughs> Um, and part of what makes understanding some of what's going on in Hebrews, I think I just broke this, um, is uh, we, we really, it's hard for us to really grasp how radical the change was for those who, um, uh, who came out of Judaism as first Christians, the first believers. And uh, to kind of get a picture of this, imagine, you know, back uh, when the days of uh, following Jesus' resurrection and the days of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out and most of the new believers and converts were of course first Jewish people who came to Christ and um, just just imagine if you can put yourself in, in their shoes for a second of how worship changed for them and it's hard for us to grasp it because our worship is so very different from how it was 2,000 years ago when the temple was still standing uh, when they went to worship when they went to church uh, they went to an incredible temple in Jerusalem where just seeing it, entering into the courtyard and, and then into the temple and seeing uh, the sight of the temple before them was literally awe-inspiring. And there was a sense that God's presence dwelled in the most holy place and even though you couldn't enter there, there was a very real intangible sense as you looked at the temple and you knew that, that just inside there was the glory of God dwelling. And you would always come bringing something. Nobody ever just came carrying their phone and their Bible, like we do. They came always with a gift, a sacrifice, because that was, was central to their worship. And whether it was the first fruits of their crops, you know, their little crop of tomatoes or uh, the wheat or grain that they've harvested, they would bring us the first fruits and they would give tangibly, not just money, but uh, the labor of their hands. And they would lay it uh, at the altar. <coughs> And oftentimes they would bring an animal that they would sacrifice. Uh, in fact, almost always it included some kind of animal sacrifice where they would lay their hands on this animal as they cut its throat, 
a very hands-on experience, right? And uh, maybe we're glad we don't do that nowadays in church. You know, come bring your, lean, your sheep forward, lay your hands on those, and I'll be slitting their throat, and the blood will pour out all over the floor. I mean, it was very real. So there's a smell, and they would put the, the, the animal on the, on the altar where it would grill. So they'd be the smell of blood and of smoke and fire and roasting meat. And then they would sit there, and as part of worship, as an important part of worship, they would sit near the altar in the temple complex, and they would share a meal in God's presence. And the idea is that they would have this meal kind of in fellowship with God. In fact, one of the offerings was called a fellowship offering. Uh, and oftentimes the thank offerings were fellowship offerings. So, you know, so that's the picture. And then they come to Jesus, they get saved, there's Pentecost, there's the church, and now what are they doing for worship? They go to some little house, right? Nothing grandiose. Somebody's home, uh, maybe a larger home, but nothing like the temple. And in that home, they, they sing some songs and they have a, a word. Uh, they break the Lord's Supper. But there is no altar. And there's no sacrifices. There's no blood. It's not hands-on like it was before. And so you can see why many of them were, were feeling like something was missing. And we're being tempted to go back to, to the old way, to the old worship. And that's largely what the book of Hebrews is about, is warning them against going back to the temple and to Judaism. Uh, so in this passage, um, he reminds them in these, in these few verses that, uh, that their worship is just as real, even though they don't have the physical temple and the physical altar, and they're not offering lambs and bulls. Uh, and he argues in this passage that actually their worship is more true, more real, and more genuine, and more what God always had intended and purposed it to be. Um, now, of course, for us, you know, probably none of us are tempted to go back to the temple in Jerusalem, partly because it's not there, uh, partly because we just have no connection with that. But this still informs us of what our worship should be and what should be at the heart and core of, of how we worship God. What is the sacrifice of praise we bring to God? Um, so let's look at starting in verse 7. And it is a bit confusing, so I'll try to not get too bogged down in some of the confusing parts and hopefully clarify it simply and quickly. Um, first three verses go together, 7, 8, and 9, and they form kind of a bit of a sandwich with uh, verses 7 and 9 being like the bread and verse 8 being the, the meat on the inside, the whatever lunch meat you like, the roast beef or something, roast lamb in this case, I suppose. Uh, and he's talking, uh, and it's important to see these three verses together because they'll help us understand what he's saying. And he's really talking here about uh, the importance, the significance, the core, uh, the grace, the grace we need for salvation, the grace of God comes through Jesus Christ alone. And he's only said that now for 13 chapters of the book, but he says it one more time. So we're going to kind of go through this quickly. But notice what he says. He says, uh, um, verse 7, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So that's the, the bread on the bottom. The leaders who spoke to you the word of God. And, and apparently the way it's worded here, these are leaders who no, are no longer with them. Either they've died or they were missionaries who have moved on. And so those original leaders who came and preached the gospel to them and taught them the truth of what Jesus had done for them, he says, remember their teaching. Remember these leaders uh, who spoke to you the word of God. 
and there's a lot we could say about this. Um, one thing, though, I think is, is worth noting here is that in the church, <coughs> what makes a good leader? Uh, and, and, and if you look not at the church globally, um, what people uh, put in, and aspire to be a leader, a good leader in a church, oftentimes comes down to certain giftings or skills that a leader has, like administration. Like they expect leaders to be organized and uh, administrative, able to, to be basically good business managers, because in many ways the church of today has become kind of a business. And so there's this expectation that, uh, that, that a good leader is a good administrator, organizer. Um, another character trait that's often uh, admired are, are leaders who are charismatic, who, who can draw people to them, kind of pied pipers. It doesn't matter where they're going. The point is they can just get people to follow them. And there are people that are like that. They just have magnetic personalities and people are just drawn to them and they flock to them. And so a lot of people think that's what's really essential. Like, we need a pastor who's like that. By the way, I am not. First two categories, I'm not. Okay, I'm neither organized nor all that charismatic. Um, sadly, there's hope for me though. Uh, third thing, a lot of times people look for leaders who are visionary. And there's a whole conference, a whole books on this, right? Like leaders need to be visionary. They need to be casting a vision that people can jump on and follow. And uh, there may be some truth to that. And in fact, uh, any leader will likely have some of these gifts. They'll, they'll be visionary or they'll be somewhat dynamic and charismatic or they'll be organized. Those, those are not bad things. But in Scripture, that is never what ultimately qualifies somebody to lead the church. He says here, what, what we look for, what makes a person a leader of the church, how we should evaluate their effectiveness is they preach the word. Right? We are, we, we are the body of Christ. Jesus is the head. And we are led by the way we connect with Jesus' instruction and teaching. We are not led because we're organized or because we're visionary, because Jesus already gave us the vision. We don't have to reinvent it. Right? We have it. What we need to do is teach it and proclaim it and show people how to follow Jesus' teaching. Right? That's what leadership is in the church. Whatever other gifts people may have, uh, we should be evaluating leaders and appointing leaders and following leaders who preach the word faithfully and effectively. And uh, I've got to be careful what I say, but I just wonder how the church in the world might change if that was really who were leading it, people who are committed to the word. But not only that, not only do they, they teach the word, but he says also that they are people whose, um, uh, he says, I want you to consider the outcome of their way of life, the end goal of their way of life and imitate their faith. Good leaders don't just preach the word, but they live the word. Or you could put it this way, they, they, they preach the word both, both, both by what they speak and they preach it through their life. Right? They don't just say one thing and do something else. They model as an example, as Paul told Timothy, be an example in these things. And so a leader is somebody who's living out these gospel truths. And that's what he said these leaders did for you. Remember them. Remember what they taught. Remember what they stood for. Remember how they lived. And that's really what their leadership is. They are leading you into a path of godliness and maturity, rooted and grounded in God's word, where you know his truth and your life is being changed and transformed by it, as theirs was. And he says, imitate their faith. Right? What, what made them successful was not that they were self-righteous, but that they knew how to trust and depend on the life-transforming power of the cross to change them and mold them and shape them and make them into mature godly leaders. He says, imitate their faith. 
imitate their lives, follow their teaching. Uh, and then he throws out this, what seems to be a rather out-of-place statement. He says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Or literally in the Greek, Jesus Christ, um, yesterday and today the same and forever. Um, and if we took this verse out of context, it would be really easy to say that he just got really excited right here. I just wanted to throw out the, the unchanging nature of Jesus. Totally irrelevant and con- disconnected from anything he's saying, but hey, it just sounded good. Amen. But actually, he's not really talking here about uh, Jesus' nature in terms of his eternal being, which is unchanging, true as that is. But this very much connects to what he's talking about, the teaching of these leaders who brought the gospel. And what he's really talking about here is not Jesus just generically or as he is in heaven as eternal God, but he's talking about Jesus the Messiah, the Savior, who he's been teaching about through this whole book. The Jesus who is the better high priest, who brought a better sacrifice in his own blood and therefore brings a better covenant, a better promise, and a better salvation. He's talking about the whole package of Jesus' life and ministry and teaching. And he said that that truth, that teaching about the gospel is what does not change. And so the, the Jesus, the same yesterday, the yesterday he's talking about is the yesterday when Jesus came and died on the cross and he gave his life as a sacrifice through his blood, making our atonement, which we'll see in a minute. That's what Jesus did. And that sacrifice is the only means of grace, he will say in a minute. It's the only way that we can be saved. And it doesn't change. It doesn't matter that it's been 2,000 years. His sacrifice is still just as effective today as it was 2,000 years ago. We don't need to change it. We don't need to add to it. We'll see in a moment, he says, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. What makes something diverse and strange? Uh, It makes it that way because it's not in line with the unchanging truth of the gospel. He said the gospel does not change. There is one way to grace, one way to salvation. It's through Christ alone as it was taught to you, and it does not change. So the today means today it's the same message that it was yesterday. And forever, that means 2,000 years later when we show up in 2018, still the same message of salvation. And there is no other. Uh, so, so we don't, and uh, you know, there's this temptation today to say, well, we need to make the message more culturally relevant. You know, it's, a, it's an irrelevant message. We need to make it more attractive to modern people. And certainly there's, there's ways we, need to, we, we may need to be careful how we communicate it in ways that they understand. But we do not change the message. Right? It doesn't need to be added. It is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we don't need to make it more culturally relevant. Because guess what? People are still sinning, and the result of that sin is they are dying and going to hell. <laughs> same yesterday, today, and forever. And there's only one way to fix that. And that is through the blood of Jesus. So that's what he means by that. And so uh, that's kind of the meat of the sandwich. And the, on the top is he says, don't, don't let, be led away by these diverse and strange teachings. Many kinds of teachings. And he's not picking out any one. He says all kinds of ways that people will twist and distort the gospel. And they will change it. Uh, they are strange teaching, meaning they don't line up with, with what those early teachers taught, the apostles and the scripture. Right? Uh, so he says... Don't let them lead you astray. Don't let them turn you away from the truth. Uh, and then he throws out a really strange saying. He says, For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, uh, not by foods which have not benefited those who are devoted to them. 
Uh, now this is where it gets kind of weird and crazy. What does he mean by this? How, how is it grace could bring food? Uh, food could bring grace. We say grace when we eat food, but what's that got to do with having grace come by food? You, you got me on this one? Well, uh, there were many kinds of teachings, but this is one that apparently was a problem for these believers. And again, it goes back to temple worship. Uh, and let me just read a little bit because it'll be more condensed and clearer. Uh, they, they had this idea that uh, when you ate, and, and in Jewish custom to this day, uh, maybe Jessica confirm this, can confirm this for me, but to this day when they sit down to a meal, they say a very, very special and specific blessing formula that comes from Psalm 104. Blessed are you, O Lord, King of the world, who brings forth bread from the earth. And it was acknowledging God's provision, that God is the one who made the earth and he gives us our bread. And so the idea was, or the background behind this particular strange teaching, was that the heart must be strengthened with food, resulting in power to praise God for the food, as well as for the grace experienced in redemption. In Jewish people, the temple era, Jewish people believed this. They believed that actually eating a meal, and not just at the temple, but actually any meal, because you're acknowledging God's provision and his grace in blessing you with food, that the meal itself became a means of appropriating God's grace. Right? So, so you, you had to eat this meal, and that's how God would pour his grace, not only for the food, but actually... Uh, redemptive grace would come through this meal. Uh, now, this is just weird because it's like, what's food got to do? But they believe this. Okay, this is, and there's a lot more history behind it we don't have time to go, go into. But, but essentially, the consumption of foods, it was urged, can bring us into the presence of God and actualize his lordship because it provides an occasion for the giving of thanks. Okay, I love this. It's too bad this isn't true. Because, like, this is awesome. Like, do you hear that? The consumption of cheeseburgers, it was urged, can bring us into the presence of God. Hallelujah. Amen. Right? I'm loving this. Like, like I like this theology. The theology of grace by food. There's, there's some real positive things to this. Like, this could change church for us. Right? The pig roast is a means of God's grace where we by enter into God's presence eating roasted pork. Amen. Okay, this is kind of the logic that's going on here. The evidence shows from history and from actually the Old Testament and a lot that was going on at that time, the evidence shows clearly that the people of God should eat and drink in order to praise him. Okay, so again, what was worship like for them? Well, worship for them was eating. It was all about a meal and celebrating. And they had every major festival, uh, except for the Day of Atonement, we'll see in a minute, uh, involved huge feasts, right? And that was worship. And, and, and honestly, uh, as, as we looked at, you know, worship is everything we do. And, and praise God, we can, we can eat, God, eat to God's glory. But, but they twisted this around to a whole different level. That it was actually a means by which we receive God's redemptive grace and help. Uh, every meal provided the Jew, faithful Jew with strength and an occasion to acknowledge the grace of God. At the same time, it was a sober reminder that ultimately one can thank God fully for redemption only through the thank offering and the fellowship meal in the presence of the altar in Jerusalem. All right. So, so apparently this was the kind of teaching that they were being exposed to. And people were saying, yeah, sure, you can worship Jesus. And sure, some grace comes through Jesus. But you're missing out if you're not doing lunch at the temple. 
right? Because you're not really getting all of God's grace and all of God's blessing. You're not receiving really all of the redemptive grace, the life-saving grace for you, if you're not doing lunch at the temple. And so there's all this pressure for them to go back. And he says, that is nonsense. He says, that is not true. He says, absolutely, do not be led away by such strange and diverse teachings, for it is good, it is essential for the heart to be strengthened by grace alone, meaning through Jesus. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is only one means of grace. There is only one means of atonement of salvation, and that is through the work of Jesus, as he has talked about over and over again. Grace comes through Christ alone, by faith in him. And he says, you know, it, it, it does not benefit those who, um, who partake. And the reason is that those who worship God in the temple had rejected Jesus. And when they rejected Jesus, when they rejected Messiah, it, it bankrupted the whole Jewish worship system. And whatever may have been true about that before, however God's grace may have been mediated, and there are some passages in the Old Testament that would support it, that's done because they rejected Christ. And so, uh, so he goes on and he says, uh, kind of next section, he says, uh, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. We have an altar which those who serve in the tent, the priests, those who serve at the temple, have no right to eat. Um, and so he really turns from kind of his foundation, that sandwich, and he, he expounds now, and he's going to build out a little more. And, and he's really talking here about what true discipleship is. What does it really mean to be a true follower of Christ? And he says, look, first of all, we need to know that we do have a true altar. Okay, I know that you're, you know, to, to those people, you're worried that you can't go worship at the temple. But he says, we have a better altar. Right? That's what he's saying in verse 10. We have an altar, a better altar, from which those who serve at the tent have no right to eat. And what is that altar? It's the cross, right? The cross, where Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice for us, the full and final and complete sacrifice for us. That is now our altar. So he said, you know, don't, be, don't feel bad. Don't feel that you're missing out because you feel like you have no altar. No, we have a better altar. And here's the truth. Those priests in the temple who are offering food and who you're being drawn back to, they have no right to eat at this altar, the altar of the cross, because they rejected Jesus. Right? They are the ones who killed him. And they have lost salvation because they turned away their Messiah. And they, he says, they have no right. They are not allowed at that, te- at that altar. So here's one better for you, right? Uh, you have an altar that they cannot eat at. As we come before the cross and we celebrate at the cross, at the foot of the cross, Jesus. Uh, and where those Jews could still go worship at the, at the temple... Uh, the point was that if they can't come eat at our altar, you should not go eat at theirs. Right? That was his, his point to them. Um, and then he goes on with some more explanation that for us could be a little confusing. He says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Uh, now, if you're thoroughly Jewish, you would know exactly what this is about. If you're not thoroughly versed in, in the book of Leviticus, 
Uh, this might go by you, but what he's talking about here is the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement was one day a year when all Israel would gather and they would offer an atonement sacrifice, uh, meaning this one sacrifice would cover their sins for a whole year and it would wash and cleanse and purify the whole congregation. So it was a very solemn day and it was a fast day. The one day when they did not eat and did not feast with this, with this offering, it was a fast uh, and two things happened when they offered the atonement sacrifice. They'd bring in a bull and they would uh, slit its throat. And the high priest, as a representative of all the people, would lay his hands on the bull as they slit its throat and they would collect its blood. And then the high priest, only this one day of the year, would take the blood into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, inside the veil. And there he would sprinkle the blood before the mercy seat of God. And by that blood, there's remission of sins, right? Through the shedding of blood, the people were cleansed and forgiven. But interestingly, because they could not eat this sacrifice, this bull was, it was not allowed to burn on the altar in the temple. Instead, what they have to do, they had to take the, the carcass, the, the, the body, and they had to take it outside the city where it was burned outside the camp in an unholy place, right? Where nobody could eat the flesh and where it was offered to a God, but it was offered to God as a sacrifice outside the temple. And that was the Day of Atonement. And it's interesting that he uses the word here, bodies, for the bodies of those animals. It's a strange way in Greek. It's not how you would say it. You wouldn't talk about the bodies of an animal. But he's, he's wanting them to picture here that he's talking here about a specific body in it by analogy, and that's the body of Jesus. And what's incredible is Jesus fulfills the, the picture and the image and the type of the atonement sacrifice, per, sacrifice perfectly. Uh, how does he do that? Well, first of all, uh, uh, he gave his blood and by his blood we are sprinkled to make us clean. And that's what he says. He said, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Uh, how did Jesus do that? Well, uh, Hebrews 9.12, he's already told us, Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not, my, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by, the, by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And then in chapter 9, verse 24, he continues on, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Right, so Jesus, uh, by his blood, uh, ascended into heaven and there presented his sacrifice, his blood shed for us uh, as an atoning sacrifice. And we all know, we talked about a lot and throughout all of scripture that it's by his blood we are cleansed. And Jesus offered that blood not in the temple on earth, but in the heavenly temple before God himself. But also Jesus fulfilled this because he was crucified outside the city. Right? He was not crucified in the temple or even in Jerusalem. He was taken outside to an unholy place. And there he was crucified. And so he says, you know, Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify his people. So incredibly, Jesus is the perfect, and he's very intentional about making this connection here. Jesus is the perfect atoning sacrifice for us. Uh, and he's showing them that <clears throat> they have a better altar and they have a much better sacrifice for ato to atone for sin because Jesus uh, offered his body outside the city 
and also because he presented his blood in heaven before God himself. Um, So he says, uh, by way of application, he kind of turns the corner a bit, and he says, what should we do with this? And this is where kind of the rubber meets the road for us. He says, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Discipleship is following Jesus. It is going where he leads and going where he has, uh, where he has gone. And the point here is that Jesus went outside the city. He went outside the temple. He went outside Judaism. And for these people, he's, he's saying to them, uh, if you want to be a true follower of Christ, you must leave behind the traditions and customs and old rituals of Judaism. And you need to follow Jesus outside the camp. Uh, and of course, for them, that brought uh, a lot of persecution. And, and uh, we may look at this and we may go, well, you know, I wasn't... For most of us, we weren't Jewish. We weren't in Judaism. Uh, we don't leave Judaism. But the truth is, for any of us who are followers of Christ, it means leaving the old behind. It means a new kind of life where we leave the kingdom of darkness behind and we come into the kingdom of light where Jesus now has right to rule over our life. And we follow him. We press on to maturity. And the way we do that is by leaving behind our, own li- our old life and our old ways. Uh, I've been reminded recently, dealing with granddaughters who are and grandchildren who are facing, they're getting to that age where they're facing intense peer pressure. And I remember back to my own experience where uh, all of a sudden life, my first really horrible experiences of life were when I was confronted with this thing called peer pressure. Right? And all my friends were pressuring me to be a better student and to be you know, a nicer and more righteous person, right? Isn't that what peer pressure does? No, right? They're pressuring you to conform to the ways of the world, the thinking and habits and sin of the world. And it's huge pressure. And if you don't conform, if you don't do what they say is cool, they laugh at you. And they, they ridicule and they make fun of you. And uh, as we get older, uh, the peer pressure changes, but it doesn't go away. It just gets more sophisticated and more grown up. Uh, peer pressure gets politically correct. Um, and, but there's pressure to conform. And if you don't conform to the world's ways, they laugh at you and ridicule you. And we see that now in much of the West. As Christians are being called uh, bigots and people who hate people because we have moral values and convictions that, that are not accepted in the, in the general culture of the world. And so they mock us and laugh at us and they ridicule us. But that's what following Jesus is. It is following him outside of the camp, away from the world, away from um, the rules and laws of of what's cool in society. And we bear his reproach. We bear the reproach, the ridicule and scorn that he endured. Um, and he, he throws in one last dig. So he said, you have a, you have a better altar. Uh, you, you have a better sacrifice. Um, one last dig. He says, uh, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Here, a final dig. We have a better city. 
And for the Jewish people, Jerusalem was everything. And to this day, it still is. And, and they, they will say, next year in Jerusalem. And they're, they, they've got hope for that city. And the author says, that city is not going to last. Right? That is not our city. We have instead a heavenly Jerusalem, the true city of God that will not uh, ever be destroyed. And it was likely very, very shortly after this that Jerusalem, in fact, was destroyed completely, completely. Um, so we have a better city, a better hope. Uh, he, he ends this passage with two uh, application points, if you will, um, of what we're supposed to do with this. And, and the point here is, is that we, have, we do have better sacrifices. We may not bring sheep and bulls and goats. We may not slit their throat and pour out their blood. And certainly we don't get to eat them except for when we have our pig roast uh, once in a while. Uh, but he says we have better sacrifices. Uh, and what are those? He says through him then, through Jesus then, through this grace that comes to us by Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Um, that praise is significant and important. It is not second class or second rate. It's not like, well, since we don't really have real sacrifices, we'll just praise God. No, actually, this is the truest and truer and higher sacrifice. And in fact, the Old Testament alludes to it. And in this, uh, certainly, he was thinking of Psalm chapter 50, if not other places. But Psalms chapter 50, uh, the psalmist says this, uh, and this is God speaking. Okay, God says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world is, and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls? Do I drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. That's the sacrifice I desire. Right? And, and, and he, says, he says here, he says, um, verse 16, these are the sacrifices, such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Right? Uh, throughout the Old Testament, God got tired of their animal sacrifices and he, he challenged the Israelites over and over again, that's not really the sacrifice I want. The sacrifice I long for is your heart given to me in, in thankful gratitude and praise. And so this is to be uh, the better sacrifice that we offer to him often, often, not just on Sundays, but daily. And the word uh, continually is the same word used in the Old Testament uh, in the Septuagint to speak of the morning and evening sacrifices. And maybe he had that in mind, that we morning and evening, if not all through the day, are offering to God sacrifices of praise, offerings of praise. And what is praise? He says, well, praise is the fruit of our lips. So it's something we speak audibly, the fruit of our lips um, that acknowledges the name of God. Right? Fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. Uh, this kind of praise is essentially proclaiming who God is and what he's done for us. And we do that a lot on Sunday. That's what a lot of our songs are about. We are proclaiming God and his goodness and his grace and all that he has done for us. And by that proclamation, we are acknowledging 
God as our Lord and the one we trust and the one we seek and turn to. And so sometimes we might kind of miss the significance of what we do when we sing and worship on Sunday morning. But, um, and, and unfortunately, oftentimes we miss what church is about. And we think good church service is a place where I get something. And I've had people say this to me, you know, I just don't feel like I got anything out of Sunday, you know, worship. I didn't get anything out of your church. I've had people tell me that. I didn't really get much out of your church. Well, guess what? That should not be why you came. Right? That is not the purpose of church, so that you can get something. Uh, and, And sadly, that works great in our very hedonistic, self-centered, self-focused society in the West. But that's not what worship is. Worship is what you come to give. And ultimately what we come is to give praise and worship to God. And the way we should evaluate our service is we should ask God, God, what did you get out of our church service? Did you get something? And I believe that when we lift up our hearts in praise... God does get something. God delights in our worship. It is pleasing to Him. And He enjoys it. He soaks it up when we praise Him and declare from pure and honest and holy hearts that have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, His praise. But not only do we praise Him with our lips, but the second thing we're to do is we are to do good. Right? Uh, let them um, uh, do, do not do, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifice sacrifices are pleasing to God. And the sacrifices are the giving of praise and the doing good to each other. Right? That is also worship. That is also the sacrifice. We are to sacrifice by helping each other out. And the word here for uh, doing good means doing kind things, helping each other, being being friendly to each other, supporting each other but also to share what you have. And the word there is the word koinonia, which we all know means fellowship. And here's the reality. Fellowship does not mean just chatting over coffee down in the lobby. Okay, that is fellowship, but it's relationship, that's good. But the heart of fellowship is sacrificial, generous sharing and giving of our stuff. Like the church of Christ is supposed to be a people who support each other with things and with money and with finances and with health. We're to be, and we talked about this last week, we're to be people who share with each other uh, out of our material resources. And that's worship. And it is a sacrifice. Right? It's giving up things that we would rather not give up. To share, to participate, to join together the, the fellowship of the body in, in community and communion. And it is worship. It is sacrifice. It's an offering that is pleasing to God. Um, so we don't, uh, we're not pulled back to the worship the way they were. Uh, but this tells us a lot about what uh, should be the priorities for our life and worship if we are true followers and disciples of Christ. Right? We are people who have um, a better temple a better sacrifice, a better altar. And it is through that work of Jesus alone that grace comes to us. And our heart is strengthened. We are fortified. We are found to be secure and anchored in his grace. And what should flow out of that is a life of praise and worship to God.
And the thing is, I think God is pretty patient with this. Like, like we may not do this whole praise thing very well, and we may trip over our words, or we may say the wrong thing, but I think God loves it when our heart is in it, right? When it comes from our heart. So we're going to do that right now. We're going to praise Him some more, and let's uh, let's do that. Uh, before that, we're going to have elder um, prayer. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.